Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Genesis 22 verses 1 to 23. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went, so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now, after these things, it was told to Abraham, behold, Milcah has also borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz, his firstborn, Buz, his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Kehesed, Ezo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Verses 17 to 18. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Genesis 22. Well, it's great to see Hi, it's great to see you. My name is Howard. Um, I am the pastor here at Westminster Chapel. Um, I'm getting all this wrong today. I'm not thinking. Um, I'm the pa- I'm the pastor here at Westminster Chapel, and everyone is welcome to our church family. We're a church for all sorts of people, all sorts of shapes, colours, and sizes. Um, you're so welcome to be a part of our family. We hope, if you're new, um, that you would find this to be an oasis, a home away from home. Um, we're a different kind of church. We just love you to discover and enjoy the beauties of the kind of church that that we are. Um, you've joined us in week four of a series that's called The Bible, and um, we are looking uh, a big picture look at history's most influential book, and it's an invitation into the greatest story, the story that shapes all of reality. It's an invitation into meaning, purpose, acceptance. Now, last week, if you were with us last week, and hi, if you're joining us online, um, it was a tough verse, right, last week. Well, this week is equally challenging. So to help us, I have decided to share four points about nothing. 
And today we're going to make much ado about nothing. Sorry, I couldn't resist that. Um, And you get to decide whether these points have substance, weight to them or not. The first of them is this. Guilty of nothing. Guilty of nothing. Are you misjudging God? That's the question. Misjudging God is something that I think we are all guilty of. Every human being. It's arguably the original sin that's committed right there back at the beginning in our kind of representatives and Adam and Eve there in Eden. And Satan comes and he comes to tempt them to make God look mean, say, don't trust God. Uh, He's so cruel and unkind. He's not letting you eat from this one tree, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Isn't he mean? And you so focus, they want to focus on that. And that's what Satan wants you to do, to focus on the one thing that is not right for you to have, that you're not ready for yet. And he's God's, God's made like everything. He's made hundreds, thousands of trees. He's amazingly generous, but Satan's like, he's so mean and he's so cruel and they believe it. That is Satan's strategy right from the very beginning. Satan comes and he seeks to make God look bad. He seeks to put a, a mask over God's face. That's what one of the Puritan writers, John Bunyan, talks about the main strategy of Satan. So to help you get this, it's a little little sermon illustration for you of what Satan seeks to do. Are you ready for this? Children, if you're here, look away now, because this is what Satan seeks to do. He puts a mask over God's face. Now, the Vladimir Putin mask, unfortunately, was unavailable um, this week. I think it's been sold out. Sorry, in an inappropriate joke. I'm going to put that away. But hopefully that's lodged in your mind now. You've got some idea. That's what he's always seeking to do, to make God look bad. Why? So you would doubt him. So you would distrust him. So that even you might dislike him. You don't want anything to do with this God. I want to live my life independently of him. That is what Satan is doing. And you're in a war where he's trying to constantly do that, to put that mask over God's face. And I mask to make him look really bad, to look, make him look not like he truly is. And one of the passages that he's been unbelievably successful at doing that is Genesis chapter 22. He's good at doing that for those who don't believe in God and those who even do believe in God. It's the passage and you're like, I just, I don't even want to read it. Why is it there in the Bible? It's ugly, it's dirty. Well, Richard Dawkins is very good at expressing himself and what he doesn't like about the Christian faith. So I thought I'd read a little bit, not all of it, because it's just too long. Um, But there's a little bit of what he thinks about this passage. He says, this disgraceful story is an example simultaneously of child abuse, bullying in two asymmetrical power relationships, and the first recorded use of the Nuremberg defense, I was only obeying orders. Now, I can understand something of where he's coming from because there is this huge gap between this part of Scripture in terms of time. We're in the 21st century and in location. We're not in the ancient Eastern world, but we are in the West and we're looking back on it, judging it in that way. So it does look really strange. In fact, you might say, surface level, it looks rubbish. It looks really bad. And it reminds me of another gap that I think almost everybody lives with, of the gap between what we know about God and our experience of God. And maybe right now in your life, there is a huge gap that's opened up. The unfair circumstances that you're living through, the trials, the tests, the difficulties, and the challenges, and they pile up as evidence against God. Hey, maybe they even prosecute him. He's not great. He can't be good. Yet the scriptures say he's good. How does this tension unfold, this, this, this great gap? How do we make sense of all of this? Well, let me ask you a question. Could it be possible that in all of that mess, all of the rubbish, you're missing something truly beautiful? I love the way that the artists Tim Noble and Sue Webster help illustrate this. What they do, and you can see in just this first slide, is they collect rubbish. Uh, 
horrible stuff. Looks really ugly. It's wasted. It's the stuff we throw away. It's shot through with holes. It's got problems. And all you can see is just the waste and the, 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 the problem, the nastiness. But when you stand back and you shine light on it, you can see a beauty that it was designed to create. Something glorious. Something wonderful. And it's my prayer that that's what God would do through this passage for you today. But I need to be honest about where we're heading. Um, I'm going to ask you to make a sacrifice. <laughs> that's, that's where we're going. What I can say is, is there won't be any blood on the floor, hopefully. Not unless you really misunderstand what I'm saying. And it's New Cork floor, so you'd be in trouble if you did that, okay? Um, in more ways than one. <laughs> but it, I can't promise it's not going to be like, painful. And one of the areas I think you can, should be considering making a sacrifice in is, is with your money. With your money. Why? why? Why am I saying that? Well, I'll give you three reasons. Number one is for the glory of God. Number two is to liberate you. And number three is because right now this church really needs it, to be frank. Um, we've lived through a pandemic. We used to hire out this venue. Venue hire has been virtually zero for most of the last two years compared to what it was before. We've engaged in a building project that has overrun on cost because they found asbestos. It's an old building and materials went up, Brexit, all this sort of stuff going on, raising prices of things. And that has left us with a reserve position which is critically low for us as a church. That may be a God set up thing to make us cry out to him, depend on him alone. In many ways, it's a test. It's a test. If we're to keep this amazing missional cafe open, which is just doing so well, started so well, but it's tough to get it to break even. December, 200 odd pounds, um, January, 640 pounds. February, 1,130 pounds. It's on an amazing trajectory. But it's costing a lot of money to run that, although it's just seeing many people connect, get to know us, come on a Sunday through it. It's an amazing opportunity. We sacrifice so much to make that happen, to be open throughout the week. It would be a tragedy to have to close it. People thought that we were closed because we weren't open throughout the week before because they're not around on Sundays. We don't want that to happen. So I'm inviting you today, next Sunday, to consider giving a one-off gift, if you're able, or to consider as well, or, or either, raising your regular giving to the church. Now, I'm not trying to guilt you into doing this. Hopefully, you'll, you'll see why. I don't think I'm that kind of pastor. Hopefully not. Um, I'm going to ask you to respond to the love of God. Our heart is to make that love of God through the resources that we have go further and farther and wider so that many, many, many more people would know. That's, that's why we're asking to do this. That's, that's what we're here for. So, okay, that's the tough part. Let's get back into the passage um, and let's ask this question. How can God be guilty of nothing? How can he be guilty of nothing? How, how can it be a passage that, that is actually full of beauty? Well, we'll see that as we go on, but I want to make four immediate points to help explain that, some details. Firstly, the passage begins after these things. It says that, verse 1, after these things. After what things? Well, let's start with the big thing, the miraculous, gracious conception of Isaac, the gift of a son to an infertile couple. That is an amazingly good, glorious thing. His, Abraham is called as good as dead in the scriptures, and now he's got a child and an heir and an heir of promise. Wow, that, that's a good thing. That's where we're starting. That's the context. And then immediately in the chapter before, Genesis chapter 21, you get this miraculous peace agreement. It comes out of nowhere with hostile neighbors who could have brought death and bloodshed and suffering and pain. But instead, what do they do? They see You've got the favor of God on you. We don't want to go to war with you because God's on your side. And so we'll have a peace agreement instead. It's after these things, the gracious, miraculous uh, goodness of God bringing life where there have been death. 
And so Abraham, as he's approaching the sacrifice, we discover what's going on in his mind. It's in Hebrews chapter 11, verses, uh, verse 18, that he he's believing that his son is going to be raised from the dead. Because God brings life. God brings life where there's death. Indeed, the very kind of nature of God is discovered here. The Lord who provides or the Lord who will see to it. The point is entrust him. The second thing is the location. It's the land of Moriah. Now, Moriah in Hebrew means really vision or even provision. So there's a massive clue straight away that he's being sent to that place from Beersheba. That, that there's, there's hope in the very decree which is bringing about destruction. There's really within it the promise of deliverance. God is, God is showing his favor in there. And then the third thing is Isaac's age. He's somewhere between 10 and 15 years old. He does not struggle. There's no hint of him resisting this in any way. And he would be a much, much older kind of emotionally maturing wise because people are just older back then than they are now because of the lives that they used to live. This is not that kind of like young child being put through this. No, this this is different. The fourth thing is it says God tests Abraham. God tests him. That means that God never had any intention that Isaac would die. It was a test. Now, I don't like tests. I'm a dyslexic. Um, tests have been kind of part of the bane in my life in some ways. Um, but spiritual tests are good. One pastor puts it like this. He says, Satan tempts you to bring out the worst in you. God tests you to bring out the best. So here's my first challenge to you. Ah. Are you misjudging God? Have you misjudged God? Have you got, him, got it wrong about God? Have you let Satan put a mask on his face to hide his inherent beautiful goodness? Don't doubt him. There's a place for doubt, but don't, I want to shift you out of that today to a place of faith from a place of doubt. That you would know the confidence God is good all the time. I love that refrain. All the time, God is good. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. That is the rhythm by which we should walk in obedience to God in our lives. Abraham and Isaac knew it. And as a result of their obedience, they knew it even more intimately. God is good. Do you? Do you? That's the first point. The second point is maturity equals God plus nothing. (laughs) W-I-I-F-M. What's in it for me? It's the question of our consumeristic generation. And it's got some validity to it, though don't get me wrong, it has a place in the world and all of that. Christianity, what's in it for me? Meaning, purpose, acceptance, love, joy, hope. Above all, I would say salvation from sin, from suffering, from death. Ultimately, it's the promise of eternal life, to be with God forever. It's knowing him and being known by him. That, that's, that's it. But is, isn't there something more? Yes. Yes. This story is an invitation to take a step towards greater maturity. Let me track back a bit, though, and try and set some context for this. And it's some years ago, when I was much younger and didn't have gray hair, I was in a church in Nairobi, and uh, I was going there with a friend, and it's what you might call a prosperity gospel church. I was sort of curious to know, what is it, what is it like? What, what do they do? What do they teach there? So I was there, and it was packed, maybe a thousand people, and they had like multiple services in the day. And um, they did two offerings that day. They did a, just a normal offering, uh, and that seemed normal, except for the fact that they had sacks like swag bags that you might see in a cartoon, I kid you not, with chained ropes around, and then they would be padlocked at the end and taken to a secure, like, bunkered room <laughs> to keep the money safe. So they did one offering like that, and then they had a guest preacher come, and he basically preached a message. If you give to God, life will go well with you. If you give to God, you'll get your visa. If you give to God, you'll get a great car. If you give to God, you'll get this, you'll get that, and so on. And then he said, if you've got any money that's still left off you know, in your pockets and you haven't given it already, put it down on the floor. Take it out. Come on, put it down on the floor. Stamp on it to take authority over it. And then you guess what you're doing with it next. Then put it up and put it in the offering. And then there's another offering that goes around like this in that moment. I found this 
so incredulous, I, started, I laughed out loud. Really inappropriate reaction, really foolish reaction when you're basically the only white face in a crowd of beautiful Kenyans. The lady who's in charge of the church called Bishop Margaret Wanjiro, and I think it's right to say her name, spotted me and called me out. Right? Think what you might about that. Gets me on the stage. And I'm like, should I go? Everybody's looking at me. And I'm something of a people pleaser. So I, sure enough, I, I get up and I, I walk up and I stand on the stage. And she says to me, what did you think of the service? And I say, well, the worship was good. It's a lame answer. It's nothing to challenge the awful teaching that was going on in the place. I regret that. Later, they would tell me that it wouldn't be unusual for her on a, on a Sunday as she's preaching to talk about the luxury items that she has brought with the money from the offering, even to hold up like a, a really expensive shoe and say, look at this. And she's trying to show off, look at me, I'm so successful. If you're part of my church and you're giving to what we're doing here, that success will rub off on you. You'll be successful as well. She was selling worldly success. She said, an easy, comfortable life. All will go well for you if you just give your money to God. She wasn't preaching the cross-shaped gospel of Jesus. Where God sends tests and trials. Where he pushes his people to discomfort, out of your comfort zone. Out of your comfort zone. So Christianity is not about becoming more comfortable. Really, it's about coming more uncomfortable in this life, knowing that your comfort's coming in the next. I'm sorry if I am sort of breaking some bubbles today, but that, that's, that's the reality. And the prototype story for that is Genesis chapter 22, because Abraham is the father of faith. We're to follow his pattern, and it's picked up throughout the whole of the New Testament, how we get saved and how we should live in response to our salvation. That's what they call upon of this great story. And just think about it. Think how tough this trial was. Three days for a start. 45-mile journey. It's not just like, it's a quick test. I'll get it done, and I'll move on, and I'll worry about the significance of it later on. Now, every second, every minute, every hour of every day, this father is in inner agony and turmoil. He's going to have to do the unbelievable. How am I going to do this? I love my son. I love my son, but God has spoken. How am I going to do this? I have a son who's also called Isaac. I just can't, I just can't imagine. You can't tell you the, the protective feelings that you have towards your own child. Occasionally, he comes home from school and he'll talk about Somebody who's not been nice to him in his classroom. And in those moments, like, everything in me is like, I'm going to go around to that kid's house. <laughs> I'm going to speak to the parents. You know, back in the days I did small circle jiu-jitsu and all this stuff, I'm like, I- I'm going to make that guy scared. He did that to my son, how dare he? Can't do it to the child, of course, so you take it out on the parents. <laughs> but, yeah, I don't do that, praise God just giving you a glimpse into something of what's going on in this moment and then and then comes question then comes Isaac's question right hey dad I know we're going to make this sacrifice but but where's the lamb flag that for later the lamb for the burnt offering I mean how tough is that what a test for me, this is like the supersized version of what it feels like when you're having that moment, either you're doing it for your church or for a movement that you're a part of, and you're about to give such an amount of money that you feel <laughs> sick in your stomach. I don't know if anybody ever been like that, where you're in that moment, in that situation, and all you want to do is frankly vomit because it's such a level of faith. You're giving out of sacrifice. It's costly. You don't know how you're going to get by really to make this work. It's not just the leftovers, but it's like, ah, this is gut-wrenching stuff. This is, I'm living by faith. It's like, oh, God, if you don't come through, I'm toast. That's a little bit of what this story is about. You see, we need tests. They expose 
what needs to be ex- addressed and they, they help us to see what needs to be celebrated of where we're at in our walk with God. And the danger is, is without them, we just hide from ourselves. We kind of don't want to deal with that. We just carry on through life. We don't, don't, sort of, we don't face the, the, the reality of, of what we need to, what we need to, to deal with to, to grow in our relationship with God. And tests are very good because they usually catch us by surprise. <laughs> we didn't expect it. Didn't see it coming. Didn't see that unfair treatment at work coming. Didn't see that misjudgment, you know, being misjudged coming. Didn't see somebody being really nasty about that. And oh, it catches you by surprise. And in those moments, it brings up what's really there that you try and suppress and hold down, right? Uh, let me try and help you see it this way. Imagine you have a basement. It's very difficult for the average Londoner, I know, but maybe there's a few of us. or You've seen one. You go down in, you know, below the, below the sort of ground floor. You go down, there's this room. I don't know what a cellar may be a better word in the UK. Um, and and you, you go down into it. But, but as you go down at the top of the stairs, there's usually a sort of a light switch. If you have one of these things, you turn the light on and you get the key in the lock and you open it. So you've been a bit noisy and the light's on. So when you go into it, everything is sort of in its proper place and hidden and, and not exposed. All the creepy crawlies have gone. They've done a runner. But then go down into this basement. Very carefully, still dark, you sneak in, you get right into the middle of it, you've got a torch this time, and you turn the torch on. And you've caught everything by surprise. You see the cockroaches, you see the rats, you see all the ugly stuff that has run for cover. That's what happens with tests. We need tests because they expose the true state of our heart or the true state of our basement. The stuff that kind of often lies hidden that we don't want to face, we don't want to deal with. And there might be moments to celebrate. It's gone. It's no longer there. Or it's, wow, I need to bring this to the light. I need to bring this to the light of God's truth, his love, and his word. See, there are moments as we grow in our faith in the Christian life where, where God asks us to do impossible things, cross-shaped things, uncomfortable things, counterintuitive things. You want me to kill the son that you promised who would go on to have this line that would bless. Huh? Doesn't make sense, does it? Moreover, you want me to sacrifice a child? That doesn't make sense either because God later in the canon of scripture, Leviticus 18 and loads of places elsewhere, he's going to say that he abhors child sacrifice. He hates it. And his nature is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So at this point in Genesis chapter 22, he certainly feels the same way. So what is going on in this passage? It's a test. It's a test. God is saying to Abraham, do you really trust me? Do you? Abraham, do you love all the blessings and the promises Do you love them more than you love me? Let me put it to to you another way. Here's the question to you. Do you love all the good stuff that God can give you? Or do you love the godly source most of those things? Or here's it in another way. Are you willing to follow God even if there's nothing in it for you. There's a story about a rich young ruler from Luke's biography about Jesus, chapter 18. And he looks like a great guy. (laughs) He's moral. He keeps the law. He keeps the commandments. He's an impressive guy. And he comes to Jesus And Jesus says to him, there's one thing that's maybe missing in your life. See, he kind of, it's the test. It's that surprise moment. You know, he's shining the spotlight into his basement. You need to sell everything that you've got and give to the poor. Personally, I don't think that Jesus actually required that of him. I think he was trying to expose where his trust really was. And the man goes away very sad, it says, because he has such great wealth. Money was his Isaac and he was unwilling to sacrifice it. He had to have a view of 
It's God plus money. It's not God plus nothing. God, I can't live, I can't live without money, so I've got to live without you, God. And it's so sad because that kind of means that the money is what's controlling him. Money is really suffocating him. The money is what's going to make him really anxious to try and maintain it. And it's cutting him off. He's having to go away from Jesus. It's cutting him off from intimacy with the being of infinite wealth. This is why it's part of my job in a city where money can still be such a big idol to pastor people about it. I wonder whether money is your Isaac. Here's some questions um, to test that out. Um, Here's here's some issues to raise with you to see if it is. Uh, The first of those would be that, that you sometimes flaunt what you've got in your clothes and what you're doing with your money, your holidays, things like that. You kind of like, it's a little bit of pride. I kind of like people to see that. And that's the first thing. The second thing is that you make out that you don't have as much money as you have. That's kind of weird sometimes where people are like, it's really struggling to get by. And you know if you're on the receiving end of it, you're thinking like, but you earn four times as much as I earn. And you've got a big hand, what's going on? It's like, well, there's something going on in your heart about your attitude towards money in those moments. Or for you, it's like your sense of safety and security goes up and down depending on how much money you've got coming in or is in your bank account. Or that you're not beyond just cheating a little bit, telling a white lie, a bit manipulation about how much tax you're going to pay so that you could get more money. Or you're not very generous with money. Or generous in the way that you could be. Or that you get jealous of people who have more money than you do. These are all signs that there might be an issue in your heart that you need to sacrifice this and, and give it to God. But it might be that money is not your Isaac. It might be something else. Something else is this God plus nothing. I can't live. What blessing is it that you can't live without? If God was to take it away from you, you'd be like, oh, I can't do, I can't, I can't do anything. I can't sacrifice that. Is it career? Is it achievement? Is it that promotion? Is it family? Is it that partner that you need to have, that special person? Is it having children? Is it the education of your children? Is it um, influence and success? Is it your reputation? Is it what other people think about you? Abraham was obedient, even though it cost him everything. That which was most precious to him is God plus nothing. How about you? What what will be your obedience? The third point, and the third and the fourth points get a bit quicker now, so don't panic. Um, I did actually think about whether we should lock the doors today, um, make a charge, an exit fee. Um, Gray came through, though. Point number three, nothing is impossible for God. The story so far from last week in Genesis chapter three, we call it the fall, sin enters the world. And what you see throughout all these coming chapters is sin spreading and spreading and spreading. The worst, most contagious, most deadly, most evil of viruses is spreading and spreading from a murder of, between brothers, Abel is killed, he's murdered to um, then God has to send a flood and then there's the ark and then as soon as they're not long out of the ark, there's this shameful act that Noah commits, sin spreading again. It hasn't solved the problem and the issue. And then you get this man called Lamech who's singled out. One of the reasons is that he starts treating women like property and then you get the Tower of Babel and they're building this tower for our name. We're going to make our name great without you, God. Sin is just spreading and spreading and spreading and spreading and spreading. So what does God do in response to that? He comes in smallness to bless largely two people and the blessing of the few, he wants to bless the many. Ordinary people, Abraham and Sarah, from a place called Ur, which would later become Babylon. We might understand it that they were infertile, insignificant, largely unimpressive, nothing that they really qualified for them for that role. And he calls them, and he justifies Abraham by faith. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. That's about 35 years, roughly speaking, before Genesis to 22. He is saved. His faith in God is accredited to him as righteousness. He is, he is saved. 
And his life since then is a sort of up and down, sort of roller coaster ride of passing some tests. He goes to rescue Lot. He prays well for Sodom. <laughs> There's these great moments, these amazing hospitality for these angelic visitors. Maybe it's even the Lord God himself coming. Great, pass the test. And then there are these horrible F failures. Famine comes. Does he trust God? No, let's go down to Egypt. Should he speak the truth to the ruler there? No, he's going to lie. He's even going to potentially pimp out his own wife. Instead of trusting in the Lord to provide this son that Isaac takes matters into his own hands. In patience. We know better than you, God. We've got this way. Massive fail, fail on the test. God doesn't give up on him. Because God has already spoken over his life what's going to happen. It's extraordinary. In Genesis chapter 15, God says, even to a man who's got no children, and it seems like it's impossible for him to have children, your offspring are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. That's a hundred thousand million stars in the Milky Way alone. And as many stars as there are in our galaxy, there are said to be galaxies in the known universe. It's a huge number. And then here in Genesis chapter 2, God comes again and he says, it's as many as the sand on the seashore. He's trying to labor the point. It's huge, abundant blessing. Some other things that he does that he's not done before is in this promise, he swears by his own name and he uses the word surely or really. I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply. Something has happened in Genesis chapter 22 that releases God to express to humanity that the promises that he had made are going to happen with a greater certainty. So that humanity would know the absolute certainty of the promises that he's made like they hadn't been able to do before because of what has just taken place in Genesis chapter 22. What is going on here? Well, it's that Abraham is justified by faith 35 years before. And now we read James chapter 2 that he is justified by this word. This, that he's justified by words is being described. That his behavior has finally caught up with his saving belief. This is the miracle of what God has done in his life. He's taken a doubting, disobedient, distrustful man and he's shaped his heart into an extraordinary level of obedience. He's melted that heart. He's brought this man to do what seems like the impossible act of faith from such disobedience. And it's an encouragement to us. Nothing is impossible for God. There's nothing impossible for him. Because he can do that with your heart too. He doesn't just have power to save. He has power to sanctify. To make you holy and more like Christ. However you fail. (laughs) Whatever your spiritual report card. He can come even in this moment. Even in the test of today. And help you to respond rightly. We know this in history as well. That nothing is impossible for God. Because what he promises starts to happen. Abraham's family line turns into the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel just grows and multiplies massively. To the point even under persecution in Egypt. As they're leaving the Exodus Exodus chapter 12, verse 37, the numbers are staggering. They are phenomenal. It's explosive growth. And then we come into the New Testament. And 150 ordinary people in an upper room, God would pour out his spirit on in power and they would go and spread the good news of the gospel far and wide. Far and wide. So that the Christian faith today is the most spread belief system in the world. I don't know if you know that. Colonialization, by the way, doesn't explain that. It's because there's something transcendent about Christianity. It's not man-made. It's not based on one culture saying you have to eat this food, wear these clothes, do these certain things, 
No, 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 it's not, it's not about that. That's not what the Christian faith is about. It doesn't say you have to deny your national identity. It can affirm and challenge aspects of every single culture around the world because it's transcultural. It's coming down from above, which is why it's relevant to every single culture, nation. And that's God's heart that it's always been, that he wanted to bless all nations, the people of every creed and color and background. That is the plan. That was always the plan. God is the super spreader of blessing and blessing is the answer to the virus of sin. Genesis chapter 1, he comes and he says, doesn't he? He wants to bless. He wants to bless. That's what he's doing then. And then he comes again. Genesis chapter 15, Genesis chapter 22. He comes to bless. When he comes in Jesus himself, God walking amongst us, he starts to teach blessing. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. That word, by the way, means joyful, happy, flourishing. Blessed are you. When you recognize your spiritual poverty, that without God you're dead, you've got nothing, you've got to call upon him, that you need him. Blessed are you, joyful, happy are you when you mourn over your own sins and the sins of the world. Blessed are you when you hunger and thirst for his righteousness, for his ways. God is the blesser, but that's always been the plan. The problem has always been people hoarding the blessing instead of giving it away. And so God has to keep coming in these moments where there's been failure to carry out his will, where they've bottlenecked it to themselves. The nation of Israel would be a good example. They were called to be a light to the nations, and instead they wouldn't even sit and have fellowship and have a meal with a Gentile. So God came. God came, and he turned it all around. So my question to you is, are you grasping or are you giving away? And are you wrongly downplaying what God could do with your act of sacrifice? Abraham's act of sacrifice became infamous. I think back to over a year, just about a year ago, when we had a giving day here. Just as some context, that was the last time, by the way, that I taught on giving. And maybe that's been remiss of me. But we gave a giving day for £250,000 in all the uncertainties that was the pandemic back then. And you gave an amazing £330,000 beyond that. It was phenomenal. It was an extraordinary moment of faith. There was a witness to it. You may not know that's what happened, but our building project team were kind of struck dumb that that had happened. What? This is a project that's not funded by all these other sort of businesses or, or secular giftings or state-funded. Like, and the members, they gave what? Touched them, made them curious. It was a powerful witness. And that's what God is calling us, to be an amazing witness of generosity, to prove the genuineness of our faith to the world around us. That leads me to the final point. Hold nothing back. Hold nothing back. It's a provocative phrase, isn't it? It's actually a prophetic word that we received in June 2019. um, And we're in a season of dusting them off and and sharing them. Um, And this came from a man called Carl Beach. He is the president of Christian Vision for Men. He's held this gathering for men, sort of Bible camp every year for a couple of years before the pandemic. He's seen something like over a thousand men come to faith through it. He runs Edge Ministries and not knowing actually anything in advance of coming before he preached, he'd only heard us share that we'd got planning permission that week. He didn't know that we were planning a giving day the following Sunday, but he said this, I feel like God's saying to you as a church, And I don't know about these building plan things, how significant that was. I feel like God's saying, don't hold back in this season. Empty your pockets for this. This is a unique, divine opportunity for you as a church to use everything God has placed in your hands to create a dynamic rescue center in the heart of London. I think you're on the edge of something really significant. Do not hold back. And if you're not yet behind the vision, I think I can say as someone who's a complete outsider, it's of the Lord. It's solidly of Jesus. 
got two questions left, really. They sort of overlap before we'll finish. Why should you give? I want to encourage you to give so that you could know God more. I want to encourage you to give so that you could draw closer to him. That's why we should sacrifice. That's what happened for Abraham. John chapter 8, verse 56. And I like the message um, paraphrase of this verse. It says that as a result of Abraham's obedience, he was granted the privilege to kind of look ahead into history to the day of Jesus' coming to Jesus' death on the cross, to his resurrection. He was brought in. He, he was able to see something of the greater work of God that was going to happen. This is an extraordinary insight, and it came about of this act of obedience because he was brought so close to God in what he was doing. He was immersed. He was baptized in what we might call the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. He saw what a privilege as a father to gain insight into the father, God the father's sacrifice for his own son. This is an amazing moment for him. What a privilege. What an intimacy. What an insight to know that God loves us that much to be going through that literally himself. And that story is the story that then gets echoed throughout the scripture. It's just the drumbeat of scripture, the gospel that's coming. Genesis chapter 2 coming again and again and again. You don't have to look far. You come into the story of Joseph. And you have this wonderful moment where Joseph has been sold into slavery and by his own brothers. And he's meeting his brothers and Joseph is testing them. And he wants to hold Benjamin, the youngest one. As a slave. And Judah says, uh-uh. The line has been crossed. You're not doing that. Take me. He's in this moment. He's saying, no, I'm, I'm going to stand in the place of Benjamin. I'm going to sell myself into slavery for him that he might go free. And it's that moment, if you read the next chapter, it's that moment where Joseph, he breaks down. And he loses control. Because he's experiencing something of the heart of God and substitutionary sacrifice, the love of God. That's why we feel it in any story. This is what makes what moves your heart the most. It's that story. And it carries on through. You get to the Exodus and you get to the firstborn sons of, of Israel. And they're facing death, the judgment of God. But because they sacrifice this lamb and they paint the blood over the door frames, it passes over them. You see, it just keeps coming, this refrain, all the way through Scripture, the heartbeat of God. You did not withhold your son, your one and only son from me. And then we come into the New Testament and to famous verses like John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. You see the echo. Now we know. Now we know that he loves us because he would not withhold his son, his one and only son, from us. Paul goes on in Romans chapter 8 to say, He who did not spare his own son, he who did not spare that, how will he not graciously give us all things? The extraordinary sacrifice. You see, the truth is we're like Abraham. We were as good as dead, spiritually dead. We might have a, a, a heartbeat, a physical substance to us, but we were dead. But he made us alive. By becoming our substitute, by dying in our place, by paying the penalty for our sin. That he could demonstrate how much he loves us, rescue us from hell and eternal torment forever. He loves us with that love. And that is how, how do we give? How can we be generous? Well, it's when that love starts to get into us through the Holy Spirit to melt our hearts into an obedient shape that we're willing to sacrifice because we are living in that sacrifice. That's how the Apostle Paul taught people to give. He said, I don't command you. He said, I point you to grace, the unearned blessing of God. He says, Jesus, God, who is rich, rich beyond imagination, he became poor so that you who were spiritually poor could become rich. I could have told you loads of stories today about great giving moments. I've had, that other people have had. They gave this in the offering and they got back this, double the amount. Somebody only gave a dollar and that enabled an orphanage to be bought. You could go all of that. I don't want you to give on that basis. I want you to give because 
you want to take a step of maturity into the greatest story of all. To know God more. To know God more. And as we make our sacrifices, whatever they may be today, I believe that many of us will gain surety, confidence, assurance of the power of God as we start to see that nothing's impossible for us because he's at work. He's changed my heart. I can't believe that I'm okay about doing this. I'm trusting him. Whoa, look at what God has done in me. And you start to see it as you look around. Look at what God is doing in all these other people. They're walking by faith. This is amazing. And it stirs us. Gosh, what could God do amongst us together as we walk by faith, as we live for him, as we seek to sow into the work of the gospel? But it's not just about money. It's about our lives. Paul would say as well, because of the mercies of God, present your bodies, all that you are, as a living sacrifice. To literally stand in the offering bucket or to let yourself like Isaac be taken to the altar to be killed, to die to sin and to self. To whatever your God plus something is today, to say, no, no more. God, I'm going to live for you alone and for your glory. I'm taking a big step to trust you. I don't want to be a spiritual babe anymore, but I want to be a mature follower of Christ. Let's take a moment to pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you came and you died for us. And Lord, we give you the situation of the church finances. But more than that, we give you the situation of London. We give you the need of this hour. And Lord, we know that a radical called out people who love you, who are motivated to honor you, who live for no lesser idols but only you, that you would be in first place in our hearts and our lives. Lord, forgive us for where we've fallen away from. Forgive us for where we've failed. We thank you that it's your heart to do that, Lord God, and awaken in us a true faith, a pure faith, a good heart that responds and experiences your great love for us. And out of that love, we would find a security and a confidence to trust you more than we've ever trusted you before, just like Abraham was able to do. And we thank you. You came through for him. We believe you'll come through for us because you're the Lord who provides. You're the Lord who will see to it. Lord, we have a confidence because your good sovereignty and mercy and love that you've demonstrated to us at the cross. So Lord, help us loosen our grip on wrong idols and provide for us as a church all that we need. Multiply even our loaves and fishes that we bring to you today. Take them further miraculously to ensure, Lord, that we're able to spread this good news of great joy, of blessing about Jesus and the salvation that he offers far and wide. Amen. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.